Before I read our next lesson, our New Testament lesson, I would uh, just welcome among us those who are worshiping by way of live streaming today. Uh, thank you for tuning in and for being such a part of the life and work of this congregation. Some of our most faithful members, uh, I'm sure many of you are aware of this, some of our most generous members are people who are not in a position to attend because of physical challenges or other things, but they are certainly a part of who we are and will remain so. So thank you. The lesson is from the fourth chapter of Matthew, the call of the first disciples. I'll be reading verses 18 through 22. As Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and they followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called to them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the expression call and response. You're more familiar with it now than you might have been before you entered the sanctuary. Call and response is a style, a pattern, a rubric. It appears in music. It appears in liturgy. It appears in public speaking and preaching in which a phrase is stated by the leader or by one group and then it is repeated sometimes in slightly different form. Uh, by the rest of the people gathered this morning. Uh, to help with this, our choir did a call and response for our response to the assurance of pardon. And you did a wonderful job. We may have to do that more. In the liturgy of the church, we see it all the time. Uh, a part of the great prayer during the communion service uh, begins, the leader will say, Lord, uh, or in a leading a prayer litany, uh, the leader will say, Lord, in your mercy, and people will respond, hear our prayer. And then in the communion Sunday, as a part of the great Eucharistic prayer, we're familiar with the call and response where we say, lift up your hearts, and the people respond, we lift them up to the Lord. The leader continues, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And the people respond, it is indeed right to give our thanks and praise. This is a style that's perhaps more common in some other congregations, in other cultures, even within America. It's been very much a part of worship in the African-American church, in the Appalachian churches. Sometimes when there weren't hymnals or printed bulletins uh, around, the people better participated through a call and response form. I have an African-American pastor in Charleston, uh, and I've worshipped with him before, and it's wonderful how his people are trained to respond in certain ways when he says certain things. They know how they're to respond. And in his church, he will say, God is good all the time, and the people respond all the time, God is good. So they know how to respond to that. And there's a famous uh, sermon that was preached in Holy Week by an African-American pastor, and he was pre preaching on Good Friday, I think, but talking about the darkness and the evil and the violence of life and of Jesus' experience when he was crucified. Uh, but all that was going to be radically reversed come Sunday morning at the time of the resurrection. So when he would say, Friday's here, 
the congregation would respond, but Sunday's coming. Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. Great call and response. Um, and so uh, as I was thinking about all of this, it uh, suddenly dawned on me, you could probably do a summary of the history of Israel and a summary of the history of the church under the rubric call and response because that's what the scriptures are telling us from the very beginning. God calls and his people respond in one way or another. They may say yes to the call. They may say no to the call. They may say later, Lord. They may say they may want to fight the call because they don't feel that they are up to the challenge that God is calling them to. But call and response from Genesis onward we see it. Even in the Garden of Eden, after man and woman had been created, they did the very thing they were told they should not do. They sinned. And so God, according to the Genesis saga, has to go and look for Adam and Eve. Where are you? He's calling. And they heard him walking and talking in the cool of the evening. And finally, Adam says, we're here. We're hiding. We were naked and ashamed. Who told you you were naked? The Lord says. Of course, they were voicing their guilt because they know, knew that they had violated the call of God to be his children there in the garden, to tend the garden and be the first parents of all people. And then it continues when God decides to remedy the mess that Adam and Eve had made in the human condition, in the human community. He calls again, he calls Abraham and Sarah to leave Ur of the Chaldees where they're living and go to a land that they had never seen where God promises in that call that you'll be a great people the parents of a great uh, nation. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham and Sarah obeyed. Now, we're going to look more closely at them and the story of their life next week. And I'm not going to have time in worship to read the whole story, so I want you to read it this week sometime in preparation for next week. So just read Genesis 15 through Genesis 18, and then I'll share that story with you in a slightly different form, thanks to Frederick Beekner and his presentation of it. So God is always calling his children. We heard the call, a part of the call of Jonah this morning. We heard Jonah's second call. God had already called Jonah to go and preach to the people of Nineveh, the dreaded enemies of the Israelites. Jonah wanted to have nothing to do with that call. He didn't want to be a part of the redemption of the Ninevites. Because he knew God well and he knew that if the people repented from his speaking and preaching to them, then God in his mercy would forgive them. So Jonah did the very thing God told him not to do. He went in the opposite direction. Nineveh is east. He went west as far as he could go. He went to the shore to the Mediterranean. He caught a boat to Tarshish. If you remember that, Tarshish was on the coast of Spain. It was as far west as people were known to travel in those days by boat. So he was trying to get as far away from God as he possibly could and as far away from this mission. So you know the story. He gets in the boat. A storm arises at the sea. The sailors are trying to figure out who's responsible for this. It seems the gods are mad. And Jonah confesses, well, it's got to be me because I'm fleeing God, trying to get away from God. So they throw, reluctantly, they throw Jonah into the sea and the sea calms. And then we read that he is swallowed by a great fish and he spit up back on the shores. 
I guess if you go through that, you pay more attention the second time your call comes. Because it says this is the second time. Jonah, won't you go to Nineveh and preach to the people there? It's a great city and many cattle <laughs> besides that. So reluctantly, Jonah goes. And God does exactly what Jonah feared he would do. You know, most preachers are not hoping and praying that everybody's going to ignore their preaching. But Jonah was. He didn't want anyone to respond to his call to repent and uh, return to the Lord. But they did repent from the king on down. And sure enough, God forgives them. So Jonah takes umbrage on that. Well, that's the end of the story. We're not talking about that. We're just looking at this call. He's called. He says no. Other people are called throughout the scriptures. Jeremiah is called. But he wants to delay the call. I'm too young. I can't do this. Gideon is called. Not me, Lord. I'm the weakest member of my clan. And I'm a coward as well. Moses was called to lead the people out of Egypt. And he says, not me, Lord. I don't speak well. I'm not, I'm not your man for this mission. Of course, the Lord has an answer for each protest when he's calling one of us or one of his people in the past to do something. Today, we're looking at the gospel lesson from the lectionary, the call of the first disciples. Now, this is radically different from that other call, the call to Jonah, because incredibly, these two brothers, Simon and Andrew, James and John, four brothers, two sets of brothers, they respond immediately to the call of Christ. And all we're told is that Jesus says, follow me. There's no bargaining. There's no negotiation. There's no questioning. There's no delay. They get up. Leave, two of them leave their father in the boat, mending the nets. And they follow Jesus along the shoreline to his ministry in Galilee. And I imagine Zebedee sitting in the boat saying, where are you boys going? We haven't finished these nets yet. But they left. There must have been something wonderfully compelling about the man Jesus that he could go to these fishermen. So far as we know, he hadn't met them and they hadn't met him. Maybe they had heard about him, who knows? Maybe they had suspicions about him. But they, he asked them to follow. And immediately, they did. They knew it was urgent. Mark's gospel makes it much more urgent even than Matthew's gospel. This use of the word immediately. And Mark is trying to show in his gospel the importance of the kingdom of God beginning with the ministry of Jesus and the call to repentance. Mark's gospel, the first 13 verses are so brief and they, deal, and they don't deal with what the other uh, gospels deal with. We're not told about the angel announcements, the birth of Jesus, all, all that, the visit of the wise men, the lineage of Jesus. None of that appears in Mark. But in 13 verses, we come all the way down through the baptism. It, it's just mentioned that he's baptized by John. He's tempted in the wilderness. And then he starts calling his, his disciples and starts preaching the kingdom is at hand. Repent. So it's very urgent. And then people are left wondering, who is this man? Who is this man that they would follow like this? I thought about this and um, have some friends here from down my, my area. But if I went to the shrimp boats out on Shem Creek back near Charleston 
and called out the shrimp boat guys to come and follow me. How many of them do you think would follow? They'd probably call 911 and say, come get this guy. We don't know who he is. But that didn't happen with Jesus. They responded. They obeyed. They said yes to the call. Not knowing where it would lead them, as Lisa pointed out in our children's sermon. They didn't know what they were facing. They didn't know what the cost would be to following Jesus. But apparently that wasn't what mattered. All that matters was were they willing to follow. Who is this man? And how are we going to respond in light of what we believe about him? That's the question in Mark. Mark is a great mystery. I don't know if you've ever read the Gospel of Mark as a mystery story, but that's what it is. Who is this man? The only ones that recognize who he, is, who he truly is are the demons that he cast out. They correctly identify, we know who you are, you're the son of God. But no human being ever says that till you get to the absolute end of the gospel of Mark. And who recognizes who Jesus is? A Gentile, a centurion, standing beneath the cross and looking up, he says, truly, this man was the son of God. And then you're left after reading the gospel. Well, if that's the case, what are you going to do about it? If that's who Jesus is, if you agree that's who Jesus is, what difference is this going to make in your life? You see, that's the decision that comes down through the ages. Each and every one have, have, of us have to respond to that question. Who do you say Jesus is? And in light of what you determine, what are you going to do about it? C.S. Lewis says there are only three things you conclude. Jesus is either a liar about who he was and how he was related to his father, or he's a lunatic. A lot of people think that they are God or God's son, so maybe he's out of his mind, or he's Lord. What have you decided? Is Jesus a liar? You wouldn't be here if you thought that. Is he a lunatic? Did he think he was the son of God, but really wasn't? Or is he Lord? And if he's Lord, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to follow when he calls you, which he does? Are you going to delay? Are you going to deny the call? Are you going to say it's really not worth the decision? But that is a decision, you know. Not to decide is to decide. So if you do nothing about it, you're saying, this man's not really worthy of me making a decision. The time is always right for disciples to examine their discipleship and to ask personally, what am I going to do about Jesus in my life? I have to tell you that the problem I've run into in every church I've ever been a part of, either as a member or as, uh, as a pastor, struggle with what it really means to be followers of Jesus Christ, what it means to be a Christian. Because many of us, and Presbyterians in particular, we're so focused on theology and doctrine, we think you have to believe the right things. And I'm not saying that beliefs are unimportant. They are important, but they're not of major importance. They're important because what you believe will ultimately reflect itself in what you say and do. But Jesus doesn't ask people to believe in him. Except for one, I think I told you this last year, except for one exception. 
John 14. Jesus is trying to comfort his disciples because they were worried. They knew the end was coming and their lives were in danger. And he says to them, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions, and if it weren't so, I would have told you. So he's so much as saying to them, don't worry, there is a future. We're going to have a future together. This isn't the end. He might have said Friday's here, but Sunday's coming. But they couldn't see Sunday at that point. So time and time again, Jesus calls his people to come among him, to be his followers, to be a part of that company of the committed. While he doesn't ask people to believe in him, except that one occasion, he does ask people to follow him time and time again, 80 times in the Gospels. The Greek word akalutheo, to follow, is used and frequently on the lips of Jesus. Too many say they believe in Jesus, but there's no evidence of it in their following. It's easy to believe. You can believe in Jesus as intellectual assent to a certain proposition. Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, I believe that. Jesus died on the cross for sinners. Yes, I, I believe that. I'm a sinner, and I believe that too. So I guess that means Jesus is my Lord, right? If I believe all these things. Not necessarily. Is he guiding you? Is he leading you? Are you following him in every aspect of your life? Not just in your religious life, not just on Sunday morning. But is it apparent that he's the Lord of your finances? That he's the Lord of your politics? That he's the Lord of your family life? If he's Lord, it'll express itself. And usually it expresses itself in what we're doing with our lives, with our money, with our time, our talents. How are we invested in the work that Jesus calls us to do, in fact, shares with us within the world? Jonah said no. Simon, Andrew, James, and John said yes. And it was a costly decision for each and every one of them. Three of them died as martyrs for the faith. Only John lived to older age as a political exile on the Isle of Patmos where he was responsible for what we call the book of Revelation. It cost them their lives. Even if they didn't die, it cost them their lives, which it costs each of us who follow. Today's sermon is being preached not simply because it's part of the lectionary text, but I just have this felt need, and I've had it for a long time that we who are members of the church of Jesus Christ need to be more than members. We need to be disciples. When I was serving as an interim in the Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church, they had a lot of signs around the church that said, from membership to discipleship. That's a great goal. It doesn't require much just to believe in Jesus. I can believe a lot of things that don't affect my life. I believe Roy Cooper's governor of North Carolina I believe Nancy Vaughn is the mayor of Greensboro, but that doesn't really shape who I am or what I do with my life or resources or time or talents or anything else. So you can believe without following, but it is very difficult to follow without coming to believe. 
because it is in the following that we experience faith and have that faith affirmed. So have you been called into a relationship with Christ, into service in his church, to be a part of the company of the committed? Are you taking that seriously? The Bible says that many are called, but few are chosen. How would you interpret that? I think it's just a proverbial way of saying that while God, Jesus calls each of us, some of us aren't willing to say yes to the call. Whosoever will may come, but some simply aren't willing. And so they're not, they're not called the chosen. Now, that could be a theological debate. The Calvinists have said, oh, no, the, those who are chosen will be willing. And the Methodists say, no, those who are willing will be chosen. I think it's both. I think to be willing and to be chosen are the same thing. But God doesn't choose us or call us against our will. If we want to say no, I believe we have the capacity to say no. So are we among the followers of Jesus? Are we giving lip service or are we giving life service to Jesus Christ? The time is never wrong for any disciple to examine the caliber of his or her discipleship. Call, Jesus calls us to do that time and time again. We're given second chances and none of us are going to follow perfectly. None of those four that first responded to the call were perfect people or perfect followers. They didn't understand Jesus quite often. They resisted what he wanted them to do quite often. They argued about who among them would be the greatest. They reluctantly heard him as he said, You're, you feed these people. You can feed them. They denied they knew him after he was arrested. When he asked them to stay awake and pray with him, they fell asleep. And when he was arrested, they turned and ran, all except for John. John was there at the foot of the cross. So they were far and away not perfect people. And neither one of us, will, any of us, will be perfect followers as well. But they persevered. And they were given additional chances, just like Jonah. And they repented. And they were forgiven. And they were reengaged in the life of followers. This last fall, we challenged you through this revival campaign for all of our members to re-examine their discipleship. And we ask you to make commitment in three areas of your life, in your worship attendance, in your study or education, to be involved somehow in growing as a disciple, and in your service. Find a way to get to work in the church and in the community. Because only in doing those three things will you find your life renewed and revived, not simply as a disciple, but as one who is willing to follow Jesus. Let us pray. Dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways. Reclothe us in our rightful minds. In purer lives thy service find. In deeper reverence praise. In simple trust, like they, theirs who heard beside the Syrian sea, the gracious calling of the Lord, let us, like them, without a word, rise up and follow thee. Amen.